0: This week on the show, we cover the FreeBSD Foundation's new team members and who they are, a little bit of introduction there, OpenZFS uh, being the ideal storage solution for university environments, a report from Scale 20X from the FreeBSD Foundation, 916 days of Emacs, how X term is better than you thought, NetBSD annual general meeting announcement, and more this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 508, Foundational Proceedings, recorded on the 10th of May, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash Now. find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome! This is another fresh well, episode, as you expect. And we have headlines as always. And this one may be of interest to you, uh, maybe of interest to you, because the foundation
1: welcomes some new team members. Yep. Uh, so at the beginning of May, the foundation did a post on the website saying the foundation is pleased to welcome two new members to the FreeBSD Foundation team. The first is Greg Wallace, who joins the foundation as the new Director of Partnerships and Research. He brings 20 years of experience in the industry uh, to the FreeBSD Foundation. He's had various roles, including technology policy, open source startup founder, and startup marketer, and many times over, uh, and also works as uh, uh, on other foundations, such as the jQuery and Node.js Foundation, and Open Mainframe and Hyperledger. His focus will be developing the mutual, mutually beneficial relationships with companies and organizations that are building with FreeBSD and representing this work in today's major technology conversations on topics like security and greener computing.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting.
1: Uh, And in his research capacity, Greg will collaborate with the academic, government, and nonprofit organizations for which FreeBSD is central to their research, uh, development, and technology transition process, uh, long before breakthrough innovations like VC pitch decks, uh, let alone chip fabs and so on, uh, they typically start as a hypothesis at a university lab. For decades, FreeBSD has been instrumental in this research, and that has produced countless advances in security, performance, and energy efficiency. Ray will take on the work to make FreeBSD the OS artifact of choice for researchers to enable the, and enable the foundation to serve as a clearinghouse for best practices and world-class educational materials. Mm-hmm. And then the second person they're adding is Pierre Ponchery, who joins the FreeBSD Foundation as a user land, software developer. He's no stranger to the BSD community, uh, having worked with FreeBSD since 4.1 and also a lot of NetBSD, uh, where he was a developer and is actually currently on the board of directors for NetBSD. But his passion and focus really is on the better user experience for all the BSD systems, uh, which you might remember his talk from FOSDEM earlier this year, trying to bring that together across the BSDs. Uh, So he's joining the FreeBSD Foundation, uh, which is a unique opportunity to contribute to the BSD ecosystem and build bridges between the communities and bring his experience to FreeBSD as well. In his new role, Pierre's responsibilities will include working on the package base tools, the installer, and maintaining ports while focusing on improving the user experience of FreeBSD with desktop environments in particular.
0: Oh, also nice efforts. So Uh, I guess uh, we should wish them good luck in their efforts and hopefully the community uh, benefits from that. Okay, then next we have another article by Clara Systems. What makes OpenZFS the ideal storage solution for university environments? I think I have a kind of a stake in this, so it's better than uh, uh, providing my own viewpoints. uh, Let's see what Clara has to say here. So as commercial storage becomes increasingly expensive, more and more the Education Vertical is looking at open source solutions for storage. This article series, oh, it's even more than one article. Uh, This will focus on providing a a better understanding of why OpenZFS is a cost-optimal, future uh, workload-ready solution for schools and universities. And we'll take a deeper dive into the demands of HPC, which is high-performance computing, and how to best leverage OpenZFS in that context. All right. They started at the beginning. What is OpenCetFS? I don't think we have to explain this to any of our listeners here again. But for those who need it, they have the uh, first section, of course, in the article. So Let's skip ahead a little bit. The challenge of storing data in university environments. And if you uh, remember my little war story there, that wasn't too much about storage. But universities are a special environment in uh, many regards. So it's good to uh, list them here. So universities have diverse storage requirements due to the wide range of activities they engage in. It also means some very unique challenges that regular users might not encounter on a regular basis just because of the dynamic environment. So what are some of the key use cases and challenges that they face? So first of all, that's research data, right? Universities are researchers for research and they generate and store massive volumes of research data. So that is already a consideration you need to do. Then there's student information. So academia, schools, universities, they need to handle vast amounts of student information, records, enrollment data, grades, and all these things. So that's another important point, the data protection there.
1: Yeah, like we definitely see uh, sometimes, sadly, where universities aren't keeping, you know, kind of their archive of, you know, thinking back even to the previous article from the foundation, it's like all this technology originally often starts as somebody's thesis at university. But if the university doesn't keep all those theses available and searchable uh, and they're only maybe in an archive, uh, in a library or whatever, then it's a problem. So knowing that you're going to have to archive everybody's thesis ever, forever, means Mm. it's just an amount of storage that's just going to keep going up. And, you know, especially when you need to archive not necessarily just the paper itself, but all the data that went with it to be able to recreate the the experiments or whatever and have the data to to go with it then Hmm. you know you're not talking about just storing a pdf for every student you're talking about possibly huge amounts of data for every single project very true yeah so that's the archival part
0: Uh, multimedia content so that's not only text they store but also lecture recordings video tutorials virtual labs and multimedia presentations so that is the variety of uh, storage content right right well just
1: especially with remote learning happening during the the pandemic and so on a lot of places did a lot of work in building infrastructure to have Hmm. video delivery for a lot of stuff but suddenly that's a lot more videos than they were planning to have to deal with and yeah
0: especially those recordings like mm-hmm. if we have a 90 minute lecture that
1: is yeah, already quite and if thematic. you're doing that especially in super hd and so on you can get a lot and then if you have virtual labs and all this other stuff it can really add up
0: hmm. then there's the institutional archives they uh, need to preserve historical records publications as as mentioned but also like day-to-day uh, business transaction that a university does right like Uh, We're buying new servers. We're buying new equipment for the students, right? 3D printers, like whatever. Uh, And that needs to be also stored as a regular, you know, company needs to do that as well. So then there's collaboration and file sharing. They foster collaboration among research, faculty, and students. So the storage system must support easy and secure sharing of data files and enabling efficient collaboration. Version control would be nice, right? And synchronization across multiple users and locations. Data protection and disaster recovery, who doesn't need that, right? So universities aren't special in there, uh, but they handle critical and sensitive data as well, and so need the same data protection mechanisms. Compliance and security is another thing they have to adhere to since they uh, work within the uh, certain country regulations, privacy laws, and security standards need to be upheld, and so that is also necessary there. Um. Then there's the higher question, should universities choose open source or commercial storage solution? And they list a couple of uh, points to consider when choosing between either of the two. Uh, First is cost effectiveness. Then there's the flexibility and customizability. A community and collaboration part, right? Then there's transparency and security, as well as expertise and knowledge sharing. All these need to be weighed against uh, the solution that you're targeting for. Then there's a question, hey, is OpenZFS actually a thing when we're doing high performance computing in our research and there's a section
1: about that yeah that's covered more in a, a future article uh but the answer mm-hmm. is yes it's probably the most popular option oh yes uh, some of sure. the biggest supercomputers in the world are all using zfs because how else do you store 700 petabytes of data
0: yep and so that may come sooner or later, more sooner than later. So we might have the best uh, operating system uh, and the best file system under it uh, prepared for that. Uh, They conclude with OpenZFS emerges as the ideal solution for university infrastructures, even in the context of HPC. Its technical prowess and unique features make it well suited for the complex requirements of university environments. Uh, OpenZFS shines in its ability to customize and optimize storage resources, with features such as transparent compression, the adaptive caching, the strong checksumming, it optimizes storage utilization, enhances performance, and reduces cost at the same time. Copy and write nature of ZFS ensures data integrity and efficient data management, both of which are critical for research activities in universities.
1: Yeah, being able to clone a data dataset uh, and then modify it by multiple separate people, but share the blocks that didn't change can mean the difference between needing a few terabytes of storage and needing a lot of terabytes of storage
0: Hmm. oh yeah and also the time savings right if you need to set up such a lab for like a group of 20 students copying that data all over again yeah it takes time
1: 20 clones takes one second (laughs) instant yeah you have
0: it okay yeah so read the full article for more details and uh yeah definitely get into zfs sooner than later if you haven't already Okay, then News Roundup this week has a conference report from the FreeBSD Foundation from uh, Scale20x. That still is, or is that back from the, yeah, they are back in uh, presence, not virtual form.
1: Yep, Uh, so about a month ago, uh, they had the opportunity to head down to Pasadena to join members of the open source community at Scale20x. This is their second time the... Author has been to scale, and the first time they had one held at the original location. On the first day of the conference, uh, they assisted uh, Roller Angel, another FreeBSD person, with running a full-day FreeBSD workshop. Uh, The goal of the day was to help people install FreeBSD on either a virtual machine or a cloud device, and install and run a desktop environment, set up a basic jail, create a local ports repository, and all the other kind of day-to-day stuff you might want to learn how to do, what makes sense to teach people in an afternoon. Uh, While it mostly went off without a hitch, we did run into a few small issues when one of the cloud providers was unable to process a credit card payment, setting us scrambling to find a different provider to provide cloud instances for the attendees. Um, But the turnout was great, and we got a wide range of participants in the workshop, everything from FreeBSD newbies to experienced users who wanted to put FreeBSD on new machines. Uh, If you're interested in going through the workshop on your own time, uh, it's also available online online. with a link in the notes here, it's on GitHub. Mm, nice. Uh, they also attended the Scale Expo Hall and staffed a FreeBSD table there uh, for most of the event, talking to members of the open source community, as always, is a favorite part of these events. And uh, we bring plenty of FreeBSD swag to hang hand out to the, to the people. Recently working on uh, expansive FreeBSD timeline, I was particularly interested in many of the attendees who had been working with Unix-like operating systems since their inception. Uh, my favorite conversation at the booth was when a FreeBSD user told us the story of when, as a child, they'd taken part in their parents' computer uh, or taken apart their parents' computer, and installed FreeBSD on it. Their parents horrified when they saw the state of the computer uh, and were greeted with an unfamiliar daemon when it booted. Grounded him and forbade him from using FreeBSD. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> he still uses FreeBSD to this day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be yeah a bit of a shock.
1: So scale was yet again another successful advocacy effort to encourage more people to use and contribute to FreeBSD. The workshop continues to be a highlight Uh, for each year we see more and more attendees and looking forward to the 20th iteration of the conference. Mm -hmm.
0: Very nice. Good to see that they're back in the flesh. All right. Then we have for you 916 days of Emacs. So you may ask, hey, uh, what crazy number is this? Um, Let's Go to this one. and see. This is sqrt minus one dot xyz, and uh, the subtitle is "Poof! I made my free time disappear." Uh, this is from Alice Kenjo. Hopefully, that's correct. On being called an Elisp mage. Okay. So the author here says, "Little did I know, on the fateful day of the 2020, of, uh, uh, this is October 9, 2020, on a, on a Friday, when I had installed GNU Emacs." I wasn't thinking about the ethical aspects of free software, the aesthetics of Lisp, or these other things uh, with which an occasional layperson may explain how an almost half a century-old program can still be in active use. In fact, when considering using software X for anything, the most important question to me was, can X provide a better user experience? For Emacs, the answer to most of these questions turned out to be yes. So over time, Emacs has become my programming environment, Email client, window manager, knowledge base, and a lot more, with links to more uh, articles in the blog. I think they ended up using, or they think I ended up using Emacs for almost as many things as possible. Uh, The author even authored a few packages that implement certain parts of their workflows that weren't readily available. Among other things, the Emacs community is responsible for the introduction to Zettelkasten, RSS, Lisps. And perhaps even my English became slightly less broken because Emacs is so text centered. Okay. A lot has changed over the course of these short two and a half years. So that's where these 916 days come from. Anyway, this post is an attempt to quantify some aspects of that story. The numbers mostly come from projects called Activity Watch and Waka Time. Mostly they're curious themselves, but also every now and then they see Emacs people discussing their journeys through the ELISP land or a potential convert wondering whether this rabbit hole is worth (laughs) investigating. If any of this applies to you, you might find something interesting in this document. So they have um, everything goes into Emacs. Like they mentioned, they started off with one thing and then more and more was added over time. So uh, they have a little Emacs config listed there. So if you're curious, you can check that out. And they have a a picture here that shows Emacs replaced various programs over time. So first they started with uh, a simple editor and then over time, um, more and more things got integrated.
1: Yeah, using it as a file manager, their email client, their RSS client, their password manager, their media player, <laughs> uh, even their window mm-hmm. manager. Yeah,
0: it makes sense. You don't need to switch apps. Yeah, it's, You just start one application and have everything. Um, they have some nice other stats and pictures about the whole process. Um, for example, like screen time ratio spent in Emacs per month, like the average number of non-AFK seconds in the Emacs window, like you can mention you can measure that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Starting out in October of 2020, they're at about 20% of their time. And then we see some days uh even peaking to more than 50% of their time. Uh and even getting into this year, most months averaged uh about fifty percent of their screen time was Emacs.
0: Also broken down into categories like configuration, 282 total hours, which is only 5% of all time. Uh, Emacs packages, org mode, the website. That's uh, working on this strange little website thing. Other code and miscellaneous stuff. Uh, Yeah, I, I guess once you've found a thing to twiddle with, then definitely they go deep into it. Some people can't get enough. Okay, same here. Switching from NeoVim, so that's one of the whole big VI versus Emacs discussion, but hey, to each his own, I would say, but here it's a nice transition from apparently uh, NeoVim, which is already an enhanced version uh, of VI, uh, into the Emacs. Okay, then they have lines of code uh, in their Emacs config over time, Emacs versus Vim config size, Emacs packages they were using. That's also interesting. Also, the time spent on each of those. It's also nice to see that they also contribute back here so that they not just use it, but also you know, provide their own packages, as mentioned. So at the bottom, they have some observations. Let's see where all that leads us. As they said, they started from the point of zero experience in with Lisp. They had a degree in software engineering, but didn't like, uh, feel like it had helped them in any direct sense. At most, it exposed them to different kinds of concepts of programming but they're confident that it's anything but a prerequisite and also known, as also shown by the story of Protesialos. Yeah, that's another another link here. The number of uh, 282 total hours of configuration may seem huge, but they didn't think it's that much over two and a half years and in comparison of the alternatives. For instance, it would take sixth place from the top if placed among my job projects. Okay. Also, my antenna pod shows 196.9 hours of podcasts played since December 2021. Are we one of those? And some of my friends report having spent thousands of hours on video games.
1: Well, okay, yeah. And keep in mind... I remember (laughs) when I had enough time to actually spend thousands of hours in a video game.
0: Uh, Since we could look at the hours now, since uh, I think Steam and, and others record the hours spent in a certain game, you kind of are surprised yourself how long that could be.
1: Yeah, yeah. uh, I used to use a a similar program to what he's using, but uh, called Rescue Time. Mm. And it was partly about, you know, finding where you're wasting your time and stopping you from doing that. And it has like a focus mode that stops you from doing things you're not supposed to do and so on to help you focus. Um, But just looking at the reports and seeing, oh, I spent that much time just reading email or that much time doing the, you know, social media or something I shouldn't have been doing. And it's like, wow, I can see where time just flitters away from you a little bit at a time. But yeah, just I wouldn't want to know how much... Just knowing how many hours I spent on Zoom last year Uh would probably uh, make me sick. I mean, it's it's good
0: to know these things. It's not just, oh my God, how time Mm -hmm. flies, but also thinking about, you know... Where it went. Rearranging Mm -hmm. it, yeah, and maybe automating certain things if possible and kind of getting an awareness how we spend our days.
1: Uh, To finish this... Yeah, well, because it can really come into... You have to know how much time you spend on it to know whether it's worth. Yeah, whether you
0: you consider it a waste or a useful use of your time.
1: Right, but like if in total in a year you only spent forty hours on it, then it doesn't seem to make sense to spend forty hours automating it. But if you spent, you know, three hundred hours on it, then spending four hours automating it would give you back a whole bunch of.
0: Oh yeah, and that's definitely worth well worth invested. Um, Okay, so in keeping in in mind that they use Emacs almost as extensively as it gets, you might as well spend much less time, like they did, figuring out for a more minimal use case. So at least in their view, this weighs against describing Emacs usage in terms of sunk cost fallacy. Here we go. However, my story is consistent with the perception of a steep learning curve in the Emacs community. 19.3 hours over five days to get started is definitely a lot. Yeah, but if people write down their... uh, starting hurdles and maybe provide some help to other people then it's easier for others to also get into that
1: i don't know if you're going to spend hundreds or thousands of hours in a tool i don't know that 20 hours of getting used to it is that much
0: and it's it's always the question like do i need to a new tool comes along do i spend the time again to learn that or do i keep with the one that i know and be productive with yep but it's difficult like New tools, a new
1: features. There's a reason why my editor of choice is still new.
0: <laughs> here we go. Then you're completely out of that Vim versus Emacs war. <laughs> Excellent. So here is another thing we have for you. Uh, Xterm, it's better than you thought. Here we go.
1: Yep. Uh, so a couple months back, uh, the author here switched to their terminal from XFCE4 terminal to the venerable Xterm. Uh, for some reason, they always put xterm in the same bucket as xclock, xmessage, and the other prehistoric commands that x comes with uh, whenever you install a, a Unix graphical environment. XIs. Yeah, it was uh, surprising to learn that xterm is very much actively developed. Even more surprisingly, it turns out xterm has incredibly low input latency compared to many modern terminals. This is easy to test at home. Try typing in xterm compared to any other terminal and see how fast and how much snappier it feels. I remember at the first of my uh, local user group meetings, we actually had people coming up with like a a, a race between different terminal <laughs> programs and, and, you know, how fast can they cat this big file and, and a bunch of things to, to see, you know, how much latency was actually coming from the terminal app itself. Uh, the lowered latency alone is worth the price of admission for most people. Uh, so I went about configuring Xterm as my default terminal. Uh, configuration goes in your .x resources file, and then you run xrdb on it uh, to apply the changes. Uh, there are some modern sensible defaults I ended up landing on. Uh, you know, using VT100 and disabling locales, and using UTF8. Uh, having scroll tty output off, but have the scroll keys on, uh, and you know, bell is urgent is true, and and so on. Uh, And then they added some styling, choosing a font and a font size and that kind of thing. Uh, And then they overrode a couple specific keys, uh, control shift, N, T, C, and V, uh, controlling their scroll back and copy selection.
0: Mm, That's definitely useful to have. I I mean, many of these editors or old programs are so poorly in defaults, you would think they would provide at least a little bit of comfort to the user but they try to be as comfortable as possible
1: but at the same time if i've been using that tool for 10 years i don't know that i expect the defaults to change yeah of
0: course but then you have your own config anyway right
1: (laughs) well maybe not though that's the problem yeah but yes uh and then they wanted to configure url handling Uh, so now we have a pretty usable setup but there's one more incredibly useful feature that is hard to figure out How to make opening urls in the browser when you select them in the uh, terminal so xterm has a configuration uh, option called printer command which is a command that has piped uh, all the text currently visible on the terminal as the name suggests it meant to be used to implement printing of the terminal on physical paper but we can save the trees and hijack this concept and instead have that pipeline go through grep uh, or whatever and actually pull out the url bits So they made a printer script that is basically grepping for, you know, starts with HTTP, maybe with an S colon slash slash, et cetera. And they grep that, unique it, uh, and then they run, uh, you know, XDG open on it to uh, open the URL. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they have their printer command to be called select URL and then setting up a translation as well so they can control what happens as they feed it into the printer script. They also uh, added another option for peeking at an alternate screen. Uh, So it says sometimes you open a full screen application like Vim or a man page, and you need to refer back to some text that was on the shell. Uh, So they have a key binding here, control shift H, and it will uh, toggle to the alternate screen. You know, that's uh, the feature I always try to turn off on Linux because I'm used to reading the man page, exiting, the rest of the text of the man page is still there and I can now type the command while still referring back to the man page. And Linux is like, oh, that was on the alternate screen. We've slipped back to the shell and, and all that text is gone no. now. Like, <laughs> uh, and they also set up a, uh, a key binding to open new terminals at the current directory. Uh, so there's a keybind action spawn new terminal that can be used for this. Uh, but they set it up with the xcwd command to get the working directory of any currently focused window uh, and so then, in their i3 config, they did a bind uh, so that they can automatically figure out the current directory and run an xterm in it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then they have a a small wish list uh, that they wish xterm had. So text reflowing when the terminal is resized. I don't know how practical that is because you don't generally don't keep all the text in memory after you've displayed it. Uh, but I can understand how it, wanting to have it as well. <laughs> Uh fallback fonts don't seem to always work. is what is it just a missing config option? Maybe somebody knows. And then transparently uh, transparency is not natively supported. I don't care about transparency so much, but maybe it's important to some people. And occasionally they see strange flickering when they're using PyCom. Uh, but that could be a bug in PyCom rather than Xterm. Hmm. But that short list isn't enough to stop me from using Xterm. And you know, while the lack of text overflow or reflow still irks me, uh the extra speed of just getting the terminal out of the way of my input is worth it
0: yeah i mean as long as we know where and how to configure certain things then people can build their own things what they like best and then there's people yeah i'm using wayland already who who needs Xterm anyway but yeah it's good start all right then we have the netbsd agm You don't know what that means. I didn't, but here it is. It's the annual general meeting. Uh, That's May 13th at 2100 UTC. And here's the message from NetBSD Announce. It goes, greetings. In 2023, the NetBSD Foundation will hold its annual general meeting in public on Saturday, May 13th at 2100 UTC in the NetBSD-AGM channel on irclibera.chat. You can use your favorite internet-related chat program or go to the web version. There's a link provided there. Um, There will be various presentations about NetBSD and a moderated Q&A session. And they have a tentatively overall agenda. Welcome introductions from the board. Foundation Administrativia uh, from board, membership exec, finance exec, and uh, summer of code admin. Then there's technical direction from Core, reling, Security, and Package Source PMC. Then there's Project Servers and Services from the Admins and Nats team. Publicity from WWW and Marketing, followed by moderated Q&A for I guess everyone in the uh, channel. We will uh, record a transcript for those unable to attend, but if you can, we look forward to seeing you there. Thanks on behalf of NetBSD Foundation Board of Directors. And they provide also some. Time zones for uh, various places in the world so you don't miss the event. Cool, interesting. Isn't that right during BSD can no, it's the Saturday, the weekend before. Okay, no conflict there. <laughs> no no crashing. <laughs> Alright, interesting. BSD now is sponsored by TarSnap. Everyone needs backups. And TarSnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Then we jump right into our feedback and questions sections. Yes, we still get feedback to our venerable email address, feedback at TV, which has been the one for like... 10 years. <laughs> yeah, eternity almost. And uh, yeah. People send us questions, like Adrian, for example, uh, about the tilde, for example. It goes like the following. Hi, guys. Great episode, as always. Thank you. Glad to hear more people discovering the tilde escape in SSH. Ah, I remember which uh, you're referring to. Yeah. A feature inherited from RSH at the dawn of network time. A time when specifically hoping or hopping from host to host was more common because each host had unique local resources. No one can doubt the utility of tilde period to close your connection, but there are two more escapes that are useful uh, way more often. Okay, here we go. One was mentioned, tilde hash. It's most useful for seeing why SSH won't exit after exiting the shell. A forwarded connection, like an X client, prevents SSH from exiting. You can solve the problem with tilde ampersand, which puts SSH in the background until the tunneled or forwarded client closes its connection. Huh, good to know. Um... The other escape is tilde control Z or tilde followed by whatever the Z is to send six stop from the terminal. This lets you suspend your SSH connection, run some local commands, then return to your suspended connection by typing FG for foreground. Ah, nice. This is invaluable when you're in a situation where you cannot open another terminal and don't have access to a TMUX or screen. Think connections through a jump post or a bastion one or a serial connection. Oh, yes, I should commit that to. Uh, <laughs> permanent memory. Maybe I'm old, but I still use tilde six stop almost every day. It's great for the forgetful who connect to a host that realize they forgot to SCP a file first. Ah, yeah. Been there. Um, Kind of like getting you your car and then needing to go back inside for your keys. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Yeah, if you do the tilde first, then the control Z will stay in the local SSH instead of being sent to the remote server, uh, and then you suspend the right thing. That's I didn't know that one. Ah, good one.
0: Always good to know that uh, our audience <laughs> gives us extra information we didn't know. So thanks, Adrian, for that one. And next up is Dan, one of the many Dans out there. Uh, Dan has a question about the root shell or root shell. It goes like this. Is it safe to change root shell? Uh, it used to be that this was strongly advised against as it could break things, But is that still the case? Personally, I still prefer to use tor, T-O-O-R, root backwards, and never touch the root defaults other than rotating passwords. But I'd love to have a better explanation of this historic advice and if it still holds. So um, my take is uh, if you change the root to a shell that is not part of the base system and the base system gets upgrades or you have some library changes and suddenly your root shell doesn't work anymore because it's missing some... Library or linked object or whatever, and then root is kind of difficult to get into because it has no
1: working shell. So, yeah, um, if you change root shell to one of the shells that's built in, everything will be fine. You change it to a shell you installed from packages or ports. Then, when you do a major upgrade, so switching from, say, previously 12 to 13, um, depending how you do the process, there's a window where you might have broken the program. Uh, generally it'll still be fine until you either do the third FreeBSD update install step where it deletes the old libraries or where you do the make delete old uh, as part of build world where it would remove the old ones that it would stop it from actually working. Um, But that's kind of what the tour user is there for is that if you just leave tour users shell not changed away from the default then you can use it to get in as root and fix the shell and get back in as root normally uh so which way around you use root and tour is kind of up to you uh, but uh in the end it is still a bit of a concern uh to you know use zsh or something as your root shell but uh again, if you're following your upgrade procedures correctly, it's not that big of a concern either.
0: Yeah, it also I think suggests that you are working a lot with the root shell, because you want to have some like typing comfort or some features that the shell give you. And I'm not sure if that is the right approach. I mean you could stay as root as long as you want, but you can it's easier to break but things.
1: Maybe the uh yeah, maybe the tip I would give here is if you do sudo s which means start my shell as root, uh, then, you know, while my user uses ZSH as its shell, root still uses the plain SH, mm. Uh or it was still CSH, I think, but either way, uh, it's changing to Uh But if you just do sudo-s, it's going to start whatever is set as the shell environment variable, and if I've logged in as Allen, That's going to be my shell, like zsh. So it'll still run zsh as root shell, but that's not root shell. If I log in as root on the terminal, uh, I'm still going to get the plain csh or sh. But when I sudo, it knows I want to use the shell Alan likes Mm. to use uh, just as root. So you have the comfort of
0: your regular shell, but with elevated privileges.
1: Yeah, uh, and root still gets to stay with, you know, plain bin sh. Also, as of previous d14, plain bin sh is not terrible anymore. Oh, yes. Like it has a history buffer and all the kind of basic quality of life stuff you need to be actually use it as your interactive shell. And that's why it's becoming the default as opposed to csh, which is what the default has been for the last 25 mm. years.
0: Yeah, so that's a, a change that people need to be aware
1: of. It means I can... It means I can write. remember how to write for loops again. <laughs> I once learned how to write for loops in CSH and then promptly forgot yeah.
0: <laughs> But of course, you can also change that again to something else. But yeah, it's it's coming. 14 is still a bit out. Uh, but yeah, there's a couple of ways to ch- change the root shell. It's definitely not recommended. You, you always ha- have the chance to do it. Uh, but be aware of some of the things that could go wrong. And you need to have a way to get the shell back that is working.
1: Yeah, basically, you always want a a kind of a a break glass account that can get in, whether that's, you know, one that doesn't uh, have 2FA in case you lose your phone or whatever, and all some mechanism so that, you know, for any one thing that can go wrong, there's some account that can get around that. It doesn't have to be the same account for all of it, but there needs to be some way to work around each different possible problem. Uh, And yeah, the tour user is basically that on purpose. Uh, So you can just take advantage of that if that works for you or come up with something else mm-hmm. okay good to know
0: then next up is uh, florian i think because it's a very common name here uh yes. about a salt extension and he references some idea which i once had so um or mentioned here on the show uh goes like this hi guys benedict mentioned his idea to build a tool of sorts which will clone a systems config using ansible Maybe this can provide some pointers or inspiration and he links to a salt project that uh, is a new salt extension. Uh, salt describe automate generating SLS files which encode the logic for, for salt or salt stack. Um, and that, yeah, is described here. So the short description is it will help anyone get a starter template from a system they already own with a salt minion on it. The generated templates can be used as is or edited to better suit your uh, environment. They make a great standing place to develop formulas on your infrastructure as code project and can also help to copy the settings of an existing brownstone server and deploy it to many other systems. Yeah, that was definitely what I was thinking of.
1: It's interesting. We're looking at something similar uh, for a customer recently and it was like, so we took a snapshot and then we modified the system how we needed it. And then we use ZFS diff to generate a list of all the files that we changed and then figure out how to teach ansible to do the right thing for that Uh, but it sounds like it's kind of the same thing but it'd be interesting to look at building something that does that you know actually out of the zfs diff uh stuff and then maybe actually diffing the the files against the snapshot and and knowing what the differences are and so on Uh, but at the same time you know once you have a zfs diff of it it's like well i could just replay this incrementally on a file yeah, system and do have this problem anyway. It's a file system but, already. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, but definitely if you're not on ZFS or some embedded system that can't run ZFS or another file system uh, or a non-ZFS system altogether, then this is something should look into it. Yeah, My salt days are kind of over at this point, but I guess there are similar things for other um, deployment systems. Cool, thanks for the link. It's definitely uh, what I was thinking of. And that brings us to the end of this episode.
1: Uh, We thank you for
0: listening. And we'll, of course, be back next week with another
1: interesting episode, as always. Remember, send your feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll see you next week.